Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo Sapiens, meet Super Sapiens. One of the greatest gifts that I've ever had, uh, I don't know if I would even give it up if I was offered a cure tomorrow. I would certainly consider it because there's no doubt that the risk for a shortened lifespan is still there, despite everything I do. Uh, the burden of the disease not only affects me, but there's people in my, uh, I have a wife, I have two sons. You know, if I don't feel well, it doesn't just affect me, it affects other people. So um, there would be a debate in my head, but the value it has given my life is immeasurable. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to 2024 and the Super Sapiens Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Frank, all new him. Cleanly shaven, well, not cleanly shaven, but on his best behavior because his parents are currently visiting him over the festive period. Is uh, what's your title again? It's some long title, Director of Applied Science and Content at Super Sapiens, David Lipman. Thanks, mate. I'm glad you've somewhat remembered the intro after a discussion pre recording that you'd forgotten it all. So, uh, muscle memory or something like that. Um, but no, mate, thank you. Good to be back. And uh, I see you spent months and months in the bush and the safari off grid doing nothing, which is good. So I'm glad you had a good Christmas and uh, good new year. Happy to see you back, mate. So uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, first day back at school jitters, you forgot how to record yourself locally. I forgot what the intro was, forgot my name, had to figure that out. Um, but we seem to be we seem to be going and getting the ball rolling here, um, and we've got big news, David. We've got massive, massive news which we've gone public with. We've been sitting on this for a while, and if you have not seen the social media channels, can you tell us about Super Sapiens Diabetes? Something we've been teasing for a long time. Yeah, I think um, we touched on it in this episode with Andrew uh, Kutnick. He's a you know, and we, we technically. We, uh, intentionally held this back a little bit, uh, this episode from publishing. So thanks to Andrew for his understanding in that because of this announcement coming out and we, we had to sort of pull it a little bit. But um, yeah, Andrew gives us some insight into life with diabetes from his point of view. He also gives us insight into some research he's done on people without diabetes using CGM. So he's the perfect bridge between the two. Uh, super Sapiens Diabetes will be super exciting for us. Uh, it's our step into the US. Uh, we'll be available there um, as a sort of to sit on top of CGM. So that'll be really cool. Um, excited to see how that goes. Uh, we are not live yet. We have a waiting list. So please join that. If you're interested, uh, follow us on the social channels. If you're interested in what we do in the diabetes space, well, the other big news we have, um, is that we are, the other big news we have is that we are raising. Um, so some of those people who might be interested in investing in us, we are live on Republic. So you can find that we sort of mentioned this on social and that sort of stuff. But if you look up Republic super sapiens, you will be able to find uh, a way to invest in Super Sapiens, which is really cool. And then, of course, the other news that probably won't be as relevant um, by the time this goes out, but we will have been at CES, which our executives are at at the moment. So they're at CES doing their thing, talking to everybody there. That's in Vegas. What does CES stand for? Consumer Electronics Symposium or something like that. It's basically a big consumer electronics show. Everyone, all the tech and wearable stuff goes there and they talk to each other and it's in Vegas, so yeah, I, nothing more needs to be said about the fact it's in Vegas, and yeah. 
I, w- I want to congratulate you. Um, we had a cool campaign over the festive period um, running from sort of Christmas, the 12 walks of Christmas, where we were encouraging people to go for a walk after a big meal because that's good for your metabolism. Um, we have a blog on that if you want to go check out blog.supersapiens.com. Um, we encourage people in the company to do it. And obviously, like the goody two shoes that you are, you walked more than anyone and you won the campaign. I mean, you can't win, but I was never going to lose. Um, so that's the most important thing. No, I mean, it's, it's not the goody two-shoes, man. It's just I don't do things by halves. Um, was also fortunate to be uh, away at the time uh, on holiday doing a lot of walking. So it helped uh, to just track a little bit more than I normally would to, uh, to do that. But I averaged something like uh, six kilometers a day or four miles a day. So uh, oh, needless to say, how you do that. Oh. Needless to say, my running suffered. It was not com- it was not fun running as a result. So um, yeah, that uh, it was good though. It's very good. Cool. Campaign, you see, so. I can go out and and run fifteen miles right now. Go out and run twenty one k's or whatever. But ask me to walk miles, four mate. kilometers. You, you can't go out and run fifteen miles right now. Fifteen kilometers, Why but not? you can't be running fifteen miles. I can, I can do it. I have the fitness to do it. My point is, but ask me to walk four kilometers. I do not have the, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a different, like mind space, a different part of the brain that you're using, but I just do not have um, the attention span for that, for that kind of walking. But I did take part in the walks. I would take my dogs for a walk after a big meal um, over the festive period, which was great. And that's something I am trying to incorporate, but I'm only doing like, I don't know, 500 meters at a time. Not like you, 6K, 7K walks. Um, Internally too, we'd like to give a shout out to someone who helps us big time at the company with all of the graphics that we put out. Kane, what has he been up to over the holiday period? Well, Kane is currently in Australia, um, working hard to not get horribly sunburnt because he's a fairly fair gentleman uh, and got engaged. So congratulations, Kane. It's really cool news. Really stoked to hear it and stoked to see it from him. So enjoy the rest of the time in, in Australia and, and congratulations to you and Fee on getting engaged. Um, he's a big petrol head and I was going to congratulate him on his brand new car that he bought as well. But since I've just mentioned that he's actually bought another car already, so it's pointless because Kane buys new cars <laughs> once a week. So yeah, I don't think I, that's relevant. I can't keep up. I can't keep up. Uh, but mate, lucky last, what have you been doing for training? What's been happening in your world, mate? 2024, big running goals for me. I've entered two ultra marathons. I've never done an ultra marathon in my life before. I'm doing two in South Africa on the road. Um, the first one being in April, two oceans marathon, where the beautiful Atlantic and Indian oceans meet in the Western Cape, stunning route, and um, that's 56 kilometers. And that's all in preparation for June's Comrades Marathon, which is 90 kilometers. And I've enlisted your help from a coaching standpoint to help me be prepared for that. And it's been a, a good journey so far, even though I'm all I feel is exhausted every day so far. Training hasn't even begun properly. I mean, you're exhausted because you, uh, yeah. It's, it's not because of training, mate. Let's put it that way. Uh, no, it's exciting, mate. It's interesting that you decided to quit Ironman before you'd finished an Ironman. But, um, you know, that's... Uh, <laughs> That's, that's just the way if it is. If you're listening so. to this for the first time, I am an Ironman Kona finisher, thanks to Super Sapien. So I have done four full Ironmans, and I've done the biggest one of them all. I will return. I will return to Ironman at some stage. And I actually think that this. So what we're doing with this ultra marathon is, 
We're upping my running mileage week by week, very carefully. At the moment, I'm at 50 to 60 Ks, doing that for a couple of weeks. Um, after four years of Ironman, sort of where I've been running anywhere between 30 and 45 kilometers a week, um, this is a great way to increase it and increase my running fitness and running mileage. And actually, in a couple of years or so, I'd like to return to Ironman, to full Ironmans, and you know, see what that does to it. So it's a cool experiment for me. Yeah, I think... Running is the most risky from an injury point of view if we exclude the fact that you know cycling you can get hit by a car. So let's exclude that and talk about, you know, training or, or overtraining or overuse type of injuries. Um, so if if running is the riskiest, then you want to minimize risk at all times, but definitely in, in Ironman and you can get very metabolically or physiologically fit swimming and cycling. Um, and there's some transfer of those to running. Running probably transfers better to cycling than the other way around, which is why all the cyclists are running including previous guests, Ash Mill and Passio and a few others are, are doing a bunch of running at the moment. So, um, and previous guests, Lisa Klein actually had just gone for a run when we had her on the podcast, but regardless, um, cycling transfers to running, not as well as running transfers to cycling, but building your running capacity or running load tolerance, I think would be helpful, but you've also got a background of a lot more training volume in terms of hours. So I don't know how many hours a week you were training for Ironman, but that's probably more hours than many runners would be running. And so that's really helpful context to go like physiologically, you could deal with the slows. Now it's just about looking after the musculoskeletal system with the extra loading. And then we can also use all that training capacity that you have to develop your physiology without running. So we're actually not going to be doing a ton of intensity on the run for you. We're going to be doing a lot more of it on the bike and swimming and all those sort of things to then facilitate more running volume. Someone else also mentioned a benefit coming from Ironman and endurance sports and now going to do an ultra run is having trained the gut to be able to take on a lot of nutrition for many, many hours during an event, something that a lot of runners in South Africa in particular aren't like adapted to. Um, I'm of the belief that intake is nowhere near. It should be in the mass participation events in South Africa. Comrades Marathon, the cutoff is 12 hours. So it's a long, long event. Um, 12 hours around my time that I do an Ironman in. So I've also, I think he, he mentioned that I, I, I've prepared my gut to be able to take on um, nutrition for a long time in an event. Yeah, the one caveat I'd say there is uh, taking nutrition on when you're running is much more difficult from a logistic standpoint, but also from a GI upset standpoint. So part of the reason that, you know, so many cyclists can take on such high carbohydrate loads is because there's not as much jostling and moving of the gut. Uh, so it's definitely easier to intake more carbohydrate on the, on the bike. And you see this, like if you look at the intake patterns, uh, and if you're not sure what they look like, go have a look at the precision fuel and hydration, um, case studies they do on these athletes. And you'll see they take in whopping amounts on the bike compared to the run. So they don't have to. And part of that's for logistics, part of it's for availability, part of it's, yeah, lots of things. But some of it is also GI risk or GI upset risk. So um, I think you're correct, but I also think that uh, running is not cycling. Good to know. It'll be interesting to see oh, how that goes down. Very, very interesting indeed. We'll keep you updated and we'll um, continue to create content around the events that we do so that you hopefully find a lot of learnings from that. David, good to see you're back up and running after your ankle injury from last year. Are you back to normal? What's the goal for 2024? So firstly, I'm looking forward to the first time you really push your intake and have to run to a bathroom, mate. I'm looking forward to that text message. But... Um, mate, I, I am going well. Ankle is feeling pretty good and it's tolerating stuff. Is 
pretty well. I'm nowhere near the load I was at before. I'm still building that back up because I'm pretty conservative with that stuff. And I don't have um, massive, massive lofty goals this year in terms of new marathon PBs or anything like that. I've got a couple of half marathons lined up and I will run Lavaredo Ultramarathon, the 50K. That's the plan at the moment. And that'll be a sort of a return to trail running. It's a race I've been eyeing off for quite a long time. It's been on my list of races I wanted to do for yeah five years plus. So got an entry, so I need to make sure I'm in shape for that. But that'll be the big one. And then the halves, other than that, don't see myself running a marathon this year, although that might change with the view towards some other longer-term stuff that I want to gain qualifiers for. So we'll see. Cool. Good luck with that. We'll be keeping an eye on that. Right. Let's get to this episode's guest and what an episode it was. Just fascinated from the point of view of he does a lot of work into glucose with athletes, but he himself lives with type 1 diabetes as well. So you are going to learn so much. I have no doubt from this episode with Dr. Andrew Kutnik. Today we're talking to Dr. Andrew Kutnik. Andrew is a researcher studying the influence of nutrition and metabolism on health, disease and performance. He gained his exercise science degree from FSU before pursuing his doctorate in biomedical sciences with a, meta- with a metabolic with a metabolic medicine lab at University of South Florida, Mosani College of Medicine. Personally, he also uses exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle factors to manage type 1 diabetes for over 12 years now, while sharing his journey on social media to help inspire others. Andrew is currently involved in ongoing research projects exploring how metabolism influences and is influenced by health, disease, and performance, and how we might leverage lifestyle and medical tools to influence the same categories. He's doing that at the Sansam Diabetes Research Institute with an enhanced focus on metabolic di- metabolic disease. His research papers have been cited over 1,000 times. He's a TEDx speaker and a new Instagram user. Andrew, welcome to the Sapiens podcast. Honor, guys. I appreciate you guys having me. Uh, and uh, thank you. Appreciate it. I'm just happy we've finally seen Zylan stumble. For the first time in 50-ish episodes, Zylan stumbled over an intro. He usually does those in one take, no blinking, no problems. So I'm going to say it's because he's impressed by you. I, I, I'll take it. I will take that one. The, the listeners won't hear that. I'm going to edit it and fix it. <laughs> nah, you can't now. It's too late now, mate. You can't fix it. That's why I knew you were going to do that. So that's why I put that foot down to make sure they had to hear that. So you have to leave it in. <laughs> you can't you can't score every goal Zylon. you know you have to you have to get 99 percent, and the, the one loss is how you feel good about the 99 percent. you know yeah i like that i'm happy to be vulnerable i'm happy to show mistakes and sort of you know david feels very inferior around me so it helps me look like a normal guy come down to his level so i'm happy to do that for a friend fair point okay yeah andrew like i've listen to a ton of uh, of your podcasts and it's been great. You've been a, a long time wishlist guest for us. So I think for those who haven't listened, uh, perhaps if you could maybe give us a bit of a talk through how you got interested into studying exercise physiology and sort of how you got to where you are today, that'd be helpful if you can give us a bit of a, a quick catch up on that. Yeah, I'll try to give you an elevator pitch version, although I can be a little winded sometimes. Uh, I started off um, kind of the quick and dirty is I, I was a, an obese kid. So I started off uh, a on record, uh, by all the biometrics, I was obese, um, you know, a lack of activity, definitely poor nutrition. And so I, 
you know, it's not hard to see a society around you, even at that stage. Uh, it always has kind of been an important part of society about uh, how do you improve your health? How do you regulate your weight is through uh, lifestyle interventions, exercise, nutrition. And so I became uh, very, very interested and passionate about that. But uh, I didn't know, you know, what degree I should pursue, like, how do I pursue that passion? And so I thought, okay, you know, go, go to college, you know, that's what you're, I think that's what you're supposed to do, right? Or, you know, uh, at least that's what I thought. And so I ended up going to Florida State University and studying exercise physiology. I absolutely loved it. Um, now, from there, I thought, okay, what's the next step? I, I want to, you know, I'm thinking about going and becoming a medical doctor. Um, that seems like the default next step. But I had done research for four years before really deciding on that decision uh, in uh, cardiovascular applied physiology. Uh, and the, in, the interaction between mental health, uh, also disease, and how uh, it's, it's regulated through or, or how those things can impact cardiovascular health or interventions that may change that. So I work with stroke patients or people at risk for depression, anxiety, uh, all looking at how those uh, interact with cardiovascular uh, biomarkers. From there was a decision that I truly loved research. I loved everything about trying to understand why something worked, how it worked, how do you make something better, and then test it to confirm that. And if it didn't work, you, you continue to iterate and optimize. That's the kind of the path of research. It never really ends. You just keep moving uh, and finding better ways to improve upon it. From there, everything has always been a very personal journey for me, starting with obesity and that kind of, uh, I lost weight and that got me an exercise nutrition. I went and got an exercise physiology degree and, and research cardiovascular implications related to XFIS. But then, you know, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes um, when I was 16 going on 17. That's now 17 years now that I've had this disease. And type one diabetes, for those who aren't familiar, is a disease where the, the body no longer regulates glucose uh, it's almost like uh, your pancreas is your thermostat of your body. Uh, and so as the glucose goes up, uh, the thermostat detects that it's getting hotter and releases, you know, insulin. Okay. And that insulin helps bring down glucose levels into normal range. Well, my body doesn't do that. Okay. And we can talk more about that later, but suffice it to say, uh, I became immensely passionate about the interaction beyond just my experience with nutrition and exercise for my own uh, obesity uh, uh weight management when I was younger, but now it was everything, every day, uh, every decision of every day of everything I was doing, what, what I was going to eat that day, how much I was going to exercise was now going to influence my daily existence, my daily life. This disease is all encompassing and it really, uh, they estimate over 180 additional decisions are made for your health every day with this disease. And so this was an impossible link. It was impossible to remove the link between my personal journey with type 1 diabetes and how it interacted with things like uh, lifestyle interventions. And so I wanted to study how lifestyle, because I always believed through my personal journey that lifestyle was as or more impactful than traditional medicine could be for health, having been obese and using it, and also having type 1 diabetes where this is more, it could not be more obvious than in a disease like type one diabetes, how important nutrition and exercise can be for health. And so I went on to study and go to a college of medicine at University of South Florida to then study the impact of nutrition on disease. Uh, this was focused on metabolic diseases uh, with, a, with, a, with a link between all the different um, uh, diseases we looked at uh, focused on metabolism, underlying metabolic deficiencies or dysfunctions. From there, uh, 
I had completed my time at University of South Florida and went on to then study the application of, because uh, we study a lot on the ketogenic diet or low carb diets. We then went to, there was a lot of interest around how do you potentially get some of the effects that are seen in the literature on the ketogenic diet by maybe applying something as simple as an exogenous ketone body. Uh, just a, a sports supplement that is o over the counter now. But uh, I will argue and, and kind of jump the gun here and say that I think these are maybe most powerful uh, in the context of disease regulation or therapy, therapeutic applications more so than maybe sports per se, but that's a whole different conversation. So I actually was uh, recruited to join Institute, the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition to study the application of these tools potentially in extreme environments for the highest level uh, of uh, what they call term operator, someone who their job every single day is to function uh, both physically and mentally at the top. It isn't just, it's not a sport per se, you're not an elite athlete, but you're elite at your skill set and cognition and physical uh, components are, are critical, uh, not only to you know the execution of your job, but sometimes your life, okay? And so uh, that's what we focused on. And I did that uh, for three years. And then I had an opportunity that I could never turn away. And that was to shift my life to focus on my own disease, the people who suffer from uh, the disease I have and translate that with a higher focus than ever before onto people who, who suffer from diseases such as obesity and diabetes. Yeah, just to take a, a step back there quick. Um, you mentioned you were an obese kid and there was a turning point. What was the catalyst for that? Was that the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes? Or did it come before that? Or did it come after that? What was the catalyst to make you want to make a change in your lifestyle? I made a change in my lifestyle because of self-esteem. You know, when you're a young kid and you're obese, the implications on, on how you're frankly treated in society, are, are it's, it's impossible to not... Uh, see it and feel it right so i wanted to lose weight so i felt better about myself you know health wasn't even the priority at that age right it was like how do i fit into my peers how do i how do i you know look how do i all those other things so um that that was my why i had tried to lose weight five or six years straight so i i understand as anyone does who struggles with the disease of obesity um how hard that can be what actually made me successful at that point in my life was accountability and some structure. Um, and that's really what uh, took me over the edge. There was no specialized diet. There was, at that time, I, I didn't have any of it to my head now uh, with the, the research I do uh, and the knowledge that came along with being able to do this research. But at that time, it was just, hey, there's, there's a plan that this probably will work. Here's some accountability. Let's stick with it. And you have some structures around you, tools, at people to help you know you through that journey and that's really what took me to actually losing the weight once i lost it uh, i was addicted you know i i i could see how powerful just simple nutritional changes exercise could be to completely transforming not, not only how you feel obviously my physical being changed but then i appreciated how i felt every single day they might then i you know, then, then my, obviously my health improved. And then I just wanted more of that. I want to feel even more, uh, even better. Uh, I want better health. Um, and that was, that was the real catalyst behind the shift in my nutrition to actually lose weight. The truth is that I had always been aware of nutrition. I'd always been aware of exercise because my parents, uh, were always exercisers and always conscious of nutrition, not to a detrimental degree, but it was always something I was aware of um, uh, within our family, cause they were always, uh, health 
aware of health and aware of health focus lifestyle. Yeah, it's really, I think it's a, it's an interesting thing. I've talked to many people uh, in my life, uh, previous lives, especially around uh, weight loss and those and, and, you know, improving health and the challenges it's cost up front benefit afterwards, unlike the opposite where it's uh, benefit up front cost later. Right. Uh, so I, the hardest thing is to see that initial gain or improvement to then create attraction the to then create the flywheel. Cause as you said, once you started to lose the weight, all of a sudden it's, Oh no, this is great. I want to keep this going, but it's, it's so hard to get to that point because it, until that point, it's all, it's all work and no benefit. And then once you start to see the benefit, then the work starts to be like, Oh, this is great. Now it's a positive flywheel. Right. So, um, it's and the, David, you're it's really the, speaking to the, what we call the ecological components, like the real life components of, of living with a disease and, and how you manage it, just a, a little bit of the psychology of that. But there's underlying neurobiology that really fights you, uh, not even neurobiology, but just general uh, uh, hormonal and biological uh, changes that occur with being overweight, then shrinking down uh, and, and the, the counter uh, balance in your body that says, Oh no, I'm, I'm under what your body views it as a semi-starvation. And so your body's fighting it at all costs to retain that evolutionary, uh, source of fuel on you as much as you can. So it wants you to eat as much as possible. So there's, there's a whole biology underpinning that, that is fighting you against your attempt to be what you think is normal based on society, but uh, based on evolution, it's, it's not ideal. Like you want to have as much weight as possible for that famine that's supposed to come. Um, at least that appears to be uh, a good explanation for why our biology is set up the way we are. Yeah, for sure. Love that. That's a, a I love that stuff. The underlying sort of uh, aspects to it. So thank you. Um, but so you're now tracking along well uh, from the sounds of things. Uh, you've sort of doing a bit better as a teenager. Now talk us through your diagnosis. What what happened there, and and sort of how did that come about? Uh, yeah, I, I can just say it, it uh, basically just sideswiped me, you know, uh, straight across the face, uh, uh, direct hit. <laughs> so uh, I was actually on a family trip uh, to Washington, D.C. Uh, as a kid. Uh, I was uh, 16 going on 17. Uh, it was like right before my birthday. Uh, and we were out there uh, right before school started, uh, you know, getting that uh, family um, get together and going and doing if any travel before we have no more time to do it. Right. And uh, right before I got on the plane, I got this upset stomach, you know, like uh, real strong pain, like, oh, man, I know I ate something terrible, right? Well, what do you do when you have an upset stomach as a kid? You know, your parents tell you, you know, drink sugar, you know, okay, so then we got Gatorade, and we got some Sprite, and I started drinking it, um, thinking that was going to help. The irony of that is that my body was quickly destroying its own cells that would regulate the glucose intake I was consuming in my body. And I didn't know it. So adding more glucose to attempt to fix my stomach problem, because I thought I had an upset stomach, which was really actually had nothing to do with my stomach. It had everything to do with the fact my body could no longer regulate and control glucose. And so that didn't help, right? <laughs> As you would expect. Uh, and over the next two to three days, I had never felt more fatigued in my entire life. I had no idea why. I was now an avid exerciser. I was of normal body weight. I, you know, why would I be fatigued doing basically minimalist work, walking around and seeing the sights and, and sounds of Washington, D.C., which, you know, you do a lot of that on your feet. Well, 
very quickly, this became more progressive. I started having upset stomachs. Uh, I was very fatigued all day. And I also had an upset stomach uh, that was overwhelming at night. Um, and I also was drinking somewhere between 16, 16 ounce glasses of water at dinner. Um, and so we're talking an absorbent amount of water. Uh, like the glasses they bring out at a restaurant, like, oh, here's your, here's your water. I, I had counted that. Uh, and one night I was 16 and they actually brought two pitchers of water the next night. Well, the, the second night there, I, my stomach got so upset that I started throwing up. Well, I went on to throw up for the next 16 hours. And it was only because my mom's, so my grandmother, so my mom's mom was a nurse my mom called her and said, Hey, you know, I don't think this is an upset stomach or he has the food, the, the bug, like what's going on. She said, take him to the hospital. I was so dehydrated that I could, I could touch my tongue. It felt like cardboard. And so it was getting very dangerous very quickly because the symptoms had started two to three days ago. I was rapidly on course. If I had not gone to the doctor, this could have been fatal. And so I ended up going to the emergency room. And I'm there. And of course, I don't know this, but these doctors do. I'm showing all the sights and sounds of a person whose pancreas no longer produces insulin. Uh, I have super high blood glucose levels. I have an extremely high level of ketone bodies, which occurred because I had no insulin. And so I, my body was in full-fledged diabetic ketoacidosis. And I could feel it. You feel absolutely terrible. They test my blood sugar and they come back and say, hey, Andrew, you know, they're telling 16-year-old Andrew, hey, your blood sugar is 596. I have no idea what this means. I'm like, okay, uh, cool. Um, and they said, you're, you have type 1 diabetes, uh, and you're going to have this for the rest of your life. And I ended up staying in, in the ICU for a week and then was in the hospital in general for two weeks, um, learning everything there was to learn about how to now manually be my own pancreas, manually utilize the most powerful hormone in the entire body that could kill you if you over, uh, over bolus it. I was now going to have to administer this every day, sometimes upwards of, of five, it, it even up to 20 times a day, depending on how much you micromanage your disease. And, uh, but I had no idea. And that week, uh, really taught me. When I got home from the hospital, which I wasn't really home, I was still actually uh, nowhere near home. I was, I was, I grew up in Florida, and so we're in in, in Virginia, in Washington D.C. I mean, these are uh, hundreds of miles away from one another, a flight away. And I sat at the the restaurant, now looking at what I was told to do, which was when you eat food, you need to count all the protein, all the fat, all the carbohydrates of every single meal, and now you need to pull out a syringe. Uh, and so in this little pouch, which I don't know if anyone can actually see this or not, but in this little pouch, I, I have a syringe. Um, and I was pulling this out in public. And I was also terrified, you know, like, I'm like, I'm going to pull out a syringe, who uses syringes, you know, uh, you know, in my head at that time, I'm 16, going 17, not normal people, right? Like, <laughs> this is a sign that something's not normal. And so I'm going to pull that out in public every single day of every single meal for the rest of my life. And I'm going to poke myself with a needle and inject a drug that could kill me if I get it wrong. And so from that point forward, my the remainder of my life, I knew that I was going to have to know everything there was to know about my body. I was going to have rev, rev, uh, resolution 
on my metabolism to a degree that an elite athlete would die for. But I didn't know it at that time. I had no idea that the amount of insights that I would gain from this disease would be more powerful than any textbook could give me about how the body works, how metabolism works, and how the interaction between glucose and insulin really works. And frankly, how consequential can be if you don't manage it correctly. And so that's ultimately my introduction to type 1 diabetes. So that was a long time ago. Um, let me ask you this, Andrew. How have you seen diabetes change um, over that time that you've had it? I know earlier it was great. You gave context to people who actually don't know what it is, so that's fantastic. So then the management of the, 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 the condition and, and, and the technology and the innovation, how have you seen that change since you were diagnosed up to now? So we're so I'm now 17 years into this disease. When I first got diagnosed, I was doing uh, injection with syringes and vials uh, using a blood meter, which you poke your finger. It's called a capillary uh, blood stick, which I'm sure many in your audience are probably very familiar with, but maybe not everyone. Um, and that was management. You take uh, a long-acting insulin at night that covers what uh, they call basal glucose needs, and then you have much faster insulins that correct for food because food is truly the most powerful and influential aspect of your glycemia. And you, and, and, and it's the most, one of the first things they teach you when you actually get diagnosed with type one diabetes, but even so that that's where I started, you know, nowadays there are tools that automatically monitor your, your glucose levels called continuous glucose monitors that are incredibly accurate. I remember one of the first iterations of these devices, I didn't have until six years into my diagnosis. Actually, maybe it was more like three. I forget the exact timeline, but it wasn't immediate. Um, it was one of the first real introductions. There's some big companies out there that had CGMs and were fighting to get on the market. Medtronic was one. There's Abbott, there's Dexcom wasn't, I don't think in the picture at that stage, but there are obviously multiple companies. Well, Medtronic had come out with a con continuous glucose monitor and I gave it a go. I, I can tell you it was anything but perfect, okay? Uh, uh, it is nowhere near how accurate it is nowadays. It's incredible how amazing these tools can be. You now, living with type 1 diabetes, you are intrinsically linked to that glycemic number. You know that if you go high, you're going to feel terrible. You know if you go low, not only will you feel terrible, but it could be extremely dangerous acutely. So in, in the short term, and so glucose is essentially everything. It is your predictor. Uh, it is your, it is your compass. It is, it is your, your map in essence of how you're going to adapt day in and day out. Uh, but not only have those come available and become extremely accurate, uh, but they also have tools where they automatically administer insulin. And I'm actually wearing on the back of my arm here, something, uh, called a, uh, uh, insulin infusion pump. I wore one of these maybe about six years into my diagnosis, but there was wires attached. There was all these in, intrinsically linked components that, you know, when you really wanted to, you know, the idea behind these devices, is you don't have to carry around a bag, a pouch like I have here with syringes and uh, vials of insulin everywhere you go, you just wear it. And so that provided a level of freedom. But what it basically meant is that you also were linked to, you know, more, more of a, 
clunky type of, uh, of device that was essentially your life-saving tool. So when you swim, what do you do? You had to take it off, put it to the side. Hopefully you don't forget to put it back in. But for that time, maybe say you went swimming for an hour, you're at a pool party or something as a kid. You're now unlinked to insulin for an hour. You know, that doesn't normally happen, right? So then you have to play catch up. And then you're riding this roller coaster every single day. It was anything but perfect, but it was sure better than nothing. I, but nowadays, these devices become linked together through uh, computer algorithms by some of the smartest people in the world, uh, some of which who actually were here at this institute and now work for Super Sapiens. Uh, Howard Zisser is one of these gentlemen uh, who helped develop some of the original connections between continuous glucose monitors and insulin pumps to try to remove the burden of these 180 decisions per day. You'll never remove it completely, but if you have something that automatically releases uh, uh, insulin into the body in response to glycemic values because of these amazing combinational tools, it can really offload a lot of the disease burden for a lot of patients and also help improve control for a lot of patients as well. It is not a complete fix. It probably will never be a complete fix. There are barriers to that that would have to be overcome before it just you just put these on and you never worry ever again. We're definitely not there yet. Uh, but nowadays, you have tools that basically run the show for you if you have access to them and you can get a hold of them. So that's where we stand today. You ticked off a lot of the questions I wanted to ask you. I was going to ask you about some of your experiences with the looping, which is the sort of connection of the uh, the insulin and the CGMs, given I saw you recently started using one. So excited to, excited you mentioned that. So that's really cool. Thank you. Um, I guess let's, so we've talked sort of about where the technology is and where you're at at the moment. We talked about diagnosis and, and how stressful and challenging that is. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the biggest challenges you've faced, you know, maybe not the diagnosis period, let's say, you know, after about a year of managing between then and now, like what are some of the bigger challenges you've faced with your diabetes? I was lucky, David, in that when I got diagnosed, the first two weeks were over, like I had overwhelming depression about the, the burden this disease had. But so th something about this journey taught me something that was invaluable in life, which was two weeks in, I thought, how do I turn this into a benefit? How do I turn this disease into something that's a win for me? Um, and so I thought, hmm, I now control the most powerful hormone in the body. I'm super passionate about exercise and performance. Uh, I got, if I, can, if I can figure this out, if I can figure out how to use this to my advantage, it'll be a huge win. Uh, and so that's how I approached it. And it fundamentally changed my perspective of the disease from, a giant burden on my shoulders to truly one of the best assets I've ever had. Type one diabetes for many people, uh, what, not everyone even with this diagnosis will know this, but right now the data says that someone with type one diabetes is expected to live about a decade shorter on average. You're expected to be at increased risk for all 10 of the leading causes of death. You're also gonna battle every day glycemic fluctuations that will change the way you feel. If you look at Google hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia symptoms, these are mental health symptoms. These are fatigue, irritability, confusion. Uh, they, they don't, these are, this disease, there's nothing free about this disease. Um, uh, there's no easy pass when it comes to this. But the way I mentally approached it was an opportunity to learn and frankly, optimize my own health. 
I, I knew everything about what I was eating. I go to the store and try and drink a zero sugar drink. Uh, I find out immediately whether that was zero sugar or not. There was no hiding from sugar. There was no hiding from the impact of food on my body. It was impossible to ignore. And so for me, the journey with diabetes does have struggles, no doubt about it. But it is also the greatest, one of the greatest gifts that I've ever had. Uh, I don't know if I would even give it up if I was offered a cure tomorrow. I would certainly consider it because there's no doubt that the risk for a shortened lifespan is still there, despite everything I do. Uh, the burden of the disease not only affects me, but there's people in my, uh, I have a wife, I have two sons. You know, if I don't feel well, it doesn't just affect me, it affects other people. So um, there would be a debate in my head, but the value it has given my life is immeasurable. And uh, I, again, I don't know if I would give it up if I could. And have there been struggles? Absolutely. Every day, you're following the line. You're following the glucose line to understand where you stand. Uh, if I feel irritable, I feel you know upset. Like imagine you drink way too much coffee. You're super anxious. Someone just dropped a giant uh, ball of stress on your plate. That's hypoglycemia. You know, that is what hypoglycemia feels like. And so it, you know, sometimes I can literally feel a certain way, like, man, like I would almost attach it to the situation in front of me. And the second I pick up my phone, look at my glucose line, I immediately realize, oh no, I, I inappropriately attached a difficult situation in life to feeling uncomfortable about it or depressed about it or anxious when really it was my glucose. It, it was my glucose is actually the reason I felt anxious, uh, or I might've felt, you know, um, like, uh, like I'm standing in front of 2000 people about to give the first speech of my life, you know, that that's what that can feel like. And, and that kind of highlights the, the importance of things like glucose and health. Um, and, uh, to me, it's, it's never more apparent than a disease like type one diabetes where the, the fluctuations and swings can really teach you the dose response it has uh, on not only physical, but mental health. So I actually want to touch on that dose response. I was watching your um, TED, TEDx talk and you were, you were saying that you actually had a decrease in insulin intake because of interventions that you made in your life. Can you talk a little bit about what those interventions were, where you were actually the response was you needed less insulin? I had, you know, when I, got type one diabetes, I was so focused and having dealt with obesity and losing weight, like I thought, oh man, that, you know, insulin's a powerful anabolic hormone. So I got, I got heavy into, to bodybuilding and weightlifting and then trying to optimize my nutrition around that. And of course I Googled, you know, what's the ideal bodybuilder diet. And I was following that, you know, it's still whole foods and all healthy and everything like, you know, chicken and rice and all that good stuff. Uh, but I wouldn't say it was the healthiest for my glycemic control, not even by a little bit. And I had actually come across from that community, from the exercise community, from the physique community, um, this idea about, man, it, it was about 15 years ago, there was hype around something called a ketogenic diet. At that time, there was a, a social aware, awareness from people even who were knowledgeable, but maybe weren't truly the world expert indicating, okay, if you do this, these low carbohydrate diets that produce ketone bodies, i.e. a ketogenic diet, um, that these ketone bodies will preserve muscle mass and you can lose, you know, all the fat you want without ever losing muscle. And while there's definitely some 
uh, uh, trinkets of truth, but also plenty of falsehood in that, that statement without context. Um, I was like, okay, I want to try this. It wasn't even about glycemic control at that time. You know, I didn't know there was, when I was first diagnosed with type one diabetes and even up to that point, you kind of just accept that these fluctuations, uh, these changes in how you feel, they're just a part of your life now. This is just how it's going to be. It wasn't until I actually did. So I, I switched my diet thinking, okay, I'm going to, this is going to help me lose fat, keep muscle. Maybe I'll perform better in the gym, uh, doing these low carbohydrate ketogenic diets. And, uh, you know, I had no idea how controversial these things were. Uh, I just was like, oh, this, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a miracle for me. You know, this is my ignorance. Uh, but I show up to my doctor three months later and, you know, I had my uh, HbA1c. This is a measure of your long-term glucose control over a two to three month period of time. It measures the amount of glucose that sticks to various tissues in your body. So higher glucose, higher value, lower glucose, lower value. Uh, it, it is the strongest predictor of outcomes in type 1 diabetes. Uh, no surprise, right? Uh, glycemic control is the most important factor in, in long-term health in, in type 1 diabetes. Well, I come back to the doctor and my HbA1c, and let me give some context. The average HbA1c in type 1 diabetes is around 8, still today, uh, 8%. That means an average blood glucose of about 183 milligrams per deciliter. Keep in mind, normal is anywhere between 70 and 120, and some would argue that uh, lower in that mean may be better depending on the context, uh, at, at least sitting there on a regular basis. Well, I come back to the doctor's office and my doctor goes, what did, what did you do? Um, I was like, well, what do you mean? You know, and I, I'm this, you know, kid, right. I'm in my adolescence and, you know, there's this world famous doctor who is, you know, telling me, uh, he was kind of a legend in, in endocrinology and, and diabetes, uh, a president for some of the biggest institutes in diabetes. And he's sitting in front of me saying, what are you doing? Uh, I've never seen a value like this in my office. And it was a 5.6% HbA1c, which meant on uh, if, if that's the only thing the doctor had seen and they didn't know I had went through the journey I did at Washington, D.C. and got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, they wouldn't think I had type 1 diabetes. I, I was normal glycemic. And so th that doctor really dug into it, said, Hey, you should speak. He got me to speak to some medical students and other things. And I was like, wow, I'm doing something special here. Not only that, I felt better. The lack of fluctuations in my glycemic values really changed the way I, I felt on a regular basis. And it, it really started to make me appreciate how important normal glucose control can actually be because for so long, I just accepted that this new normal where I was. And you, you often forget what it felt like the, before that when years passed by. But now I felt normal again. And once I felt that way, there was, it, it was, it was, there's no going back. You know, once you know what normal feels like, and you're, and then you're pushed out of it on a regular basis, it's much easier to think, oh, no, I, I don't want to do that. And there's no better experience than in type one diabetes, when you have a pure sugar drink or something else, um, where you can, you can go really high on your glucose. There's, there's context where maybe that's valuable. Okay. But in the context of type one diabetes at this time in my life, you know, I, this control around glucose, this ability to regulate how I felt on a regular basis, uh, made me appreciate how important it was to achieve optimal glucose values. And from that point forward, I was hooked. You know, being obese and, and using exercise and nutrition uh, made me passionate about the impact and how powerful it could be on regulating things like 
um, uh, health and performance and how you feel. But having type 1 diabetes made it a lifelong journey where I wanted to know everything there was to know about these glucose values. How does it link with insulin? How do, can we better improve that? And, and from then on, it was, it was inseparable for me. Um, so. Well, that's, uh, that's unreal. I mean, it's a really good segue into, uh, something we've mentioned on this podcast at least five times, uh, a paper you published recently, or you're an author on recently, um, low carbohydrate, high fat ketogenic diets on exercise crossover point and glucose homeostasis, uh, really interested in this paper. So I guess we've spoken a lot around this paper and about it, but from the horse's mouth, so to speak, I guess, what did you guys find and, and what does it sort of mean for, for athletes and, and what can we take from there? Yes. Let me give a little background. So that for a long time, the approach to exercise performance has, has largely been, uh, even since like the 1960s and seventies, uh, that high carbohydrate eating was the path to optimizing performance. Oh, we've uh, heard that. We've heard that on this podcast. Don't worry. We've got guys and girls who've been 110 grams an hour, 120 grams an hour, north of 120 grams an hour. Uh, so significant carbohydrate intake. Yeah. And, and there's reasons for that recommendation. There was evidence uh, that, that, and there's, and we wrote about that in this paper, this, uh, the context of where this come from uh, and maybe why it became so prevalent uh, in, in exercise performance. Uh, so let me first in introduce and say that there was good rationale behind why high carbohydrate diets made sense. In fact, the best performers in the world were doing it. So that's number one. Like first off, if, if the best people in the world aren't doing it, you should at least question whether doing something completely different than that would be optimal, right? Or would, would help you in your performance domain. But what became clear and again, because of my background in diabetes, I didn't go into this project with the mindset of pure performance. I went into this project thinking 70% of the population is overweight or obese. There is over half the population has prediabetes. 80% of the people with prediabetes don't know it. Um, and what is, you know, if there's a health component to this, a lot of people think that these that, that exercise basically erases all health consequences. There's no consequence if you can exercise. But there is a phenomenon called the fit but unhealthy athlete, okay? And part of that is this push for these very high glycemic carbohydrate-based diets that may, not for all, but may uh, put people at risk for, for subtle or maybe undetectable levels of metabolic dysfunction. So one of the interests we had was really around health, but there was also this interest and controversy around, well, there's been so much data that says that uh, carbohydrate intake improves performance. What if we do a very low carbohydrate diet? Everyone's doing low carbohydrate diets, but they're not doing it for the duration of time that seems to really actualize some of the key adaptations related to the diet. So when you go on a ketogenic diet, one of the very first things that happens is insulin lowers immediately. The relative amount of insulin you have is lower because glucose is lower. Well, that immediately starts to change things like um, VO2 to VCO2. So these uh, indirect calorimetry measurements of the amount you're oxidizing carbs versus fat. Ketones start to elevate within the first 24 hours of a low carbohydrate diet. So you start all, seeing all these metrics that someone's on a ketogenic diet, but what has also been true is if you actually look at the literature and look at 
the differences between high carb diet and low carb diet, if you segment them out on the duration of the diet, there, appear, there appears to be a, an important timeline, somewhere around the four week mark, where once people have been on this diet for four weeks, there appears to be a much more reliable uh, a shift. And what, what's that shift? What's that metric or shift? It's not uh, indirect calorimetry of fat and carbohydrate oxidation. It's not ketone levels. It's not any of these other things. Um, it's, it is the actual outcome and performance. It, there is no difference in performance in recent and some recent reviews and meta-analysis, not all, but in some recent ones, between lower, carbo, lower carbohydrate diet and higher carbohydrate diet. But this duration of actual time on intervention matters uh, because we don't completely understand all aspects of how these diets may change performance or physiology through various metrics. And so we're really uh, making a lot of assumptions here. So we put uh, middle-aged athletes. We chose middle-aged athletes because middle-aged athletes are more at risk. They're at this tipping point between young and healthy and aged, where age, you're at uh, a higher risk for virtually everything, um, disease, metabolic dysfunction, uh, diabetes, uh, glycemic dysfunction, and young and healthy, where you're, you're virtually protected against everything. Not anymore, <laughs> as society and changes in our, our food culture has really uh, brought this to affect the even younger population. But you're in this in-between period. So that population was really important to us. But these were highly fit, endurance middle-aged athletes running over 50 kilometers per week. Uh, VO2 maxes were uh, exceptional, uh, very lean. You know, they were, they were hey, if you're going to be middle-aged uh, and you're going to be the epitome of health, that's this cohort. Now, what we wanted to compare is let's do this four-week diet. But let's not just do a four-week diet because there had been studies where people had increased progressive training load. Uh, they, had, they weren't having control over calories. They weren't controlling body weight. Not only did we control calories, we controlled the body composition between groups. Uh, we also controlled the activity the entire time. We really wanted to understand if you can isolate out some of the biggest confounders in these studies on performance, let's isolate out the diet-induced impact of diet change with a sufficient time on diet that has been associated with shifts in performance. Uh, and what I mean by that is maybe this, this change from something being terribly negative to having sufficient time on it to maybe see the true impact of the diet. Well, we put athletes on a crossover. So they did both diets, four weeks, washout period, four weeks. So it's the same athlete. So you're controlling for things like genetic, their environment. So we did a lot to control and isolate out truly what's the impact if you have a very high carbohydrate diet, calorically neutral, no changes in body weight, and completely flip it and do a very low carbohydrate diet. Uh, and, and you disproportionately increase the amount of fat. Uh, we also tried to control protein, uh, but inherently some individuals due to the nature of the diet increase their protein intake. So that's, that's a, a, a note of a, a limitation there. Although I don't think it had major influence at all on the major points of outcome. So what did we find? Well, we found uh, that one, when these athletes were on a very, very hard carbohydrate diet versus a low carbohydrate diet, if they're on the diet for four weeks, controlling all their variables, just the diet induced shift in these carbohydrate intake, that these individuals perform the exact same. Now, is that a big deal? Well, maybe not, but in this case, yes. Okay. And the reason I would say yes is because the duration of exercise was unique. There hadn't been any real studies to look at these diet induced shifts for these high glycolytic glucose dependent exercise bouts 
or at least perceived to be exercise bouts that require so much glucose because they're so intense. There's something called the crossover effect that as the intensity of exercise increases, that the amount of glucose required for the exercise goes up as well. One of the sh most shocking components of this is not only was exercise the same between doing high intensity sprint or uh, high intensity uh, uh, intervals, but also a one mile time trial. So very, very high intense for shorter duration. But during those interventions, these athletes had the highest level of recorded fat oxidation ever on record. So this, and this was even at a VO2 max north of 85%. This is when fat oxidation be, should be at or near, you know, I put quotes around it, zero. You're never really truly at zero uh, for, meta, uh, for any oxidating any substrate your relative shifts, right? But it should have been extremely low. Not only was it not low, it was the highest ever recorded. Uh, and frankly, we probably underestimated it. It is well known with these tools and limitations of, of assessing uh, the air that you breathe in and expire, which is used to then calculate the amount of fat and carbohydrate oxidation. Once you get above a certain intensity level, you underestimate fat oxidation levels. So that 1.8, Sorry, when you went over 85% of VO2 max, these values of fat oxidation were likely not truly capturing the real amount of fat oxidation. So not only was it the highest, but it was also probably underestimated. We saw these were off the charts, despite being at an intensity level that would have frankly should have shut that value down. Uh, this really blew my mind. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting to see this, especially in middle-aged athletes. Uh, and what was even more impressive beyond that, which really opened my eyes as someone who's lived with diabetes and understands the link between glycemia as these athletes were continuous glucose monitors the entire time they were on each intervention, this captures their 24 hour glucose control and also their fasting glucose control. Where are they at when they're not eating food, which is predictive. Uh, and use as diagnostics for things like diabetes. Not CGMs aren't diagnostic per se for diabetes, although I think they will be one day, but just like a, a, a blood draw of glucose in the fasted state. So it gives you resolution on, on their metabolic status. Well, the individuals on a high carbohydrate diet all had higher glucose levels, all had higher fluctuations, maybe not a total surprise to everyone, um, but 30% of them had prediabetes based on fasting CGM values. And we believe that this wasn't just a measurement error, wasn't a variability and error in these devices. Uh, it seemed like this was a real value. Uh, and honestly, the reason we chose CGMs as a tool is because HbA1c takes uh, two to three months to see a full effect. Well, we weren't doing two to three months on diet. We're doing four weeks. We want to see right at that tipping point where we thought it may shift uh, performance metrics being long, long enough on this diet. And seeing those values opened my eyes because it wasn't all the athletes, okay? But there were 30% of them that had pre-diabetic values. Uh, and this was not a single snapshot at a one time point. This was the full month-long diet intervention where they saw these elevated values. Those same athletes were also the athletes that had the highest response to carbohydrate restriction those three athletes were also the ones who had the highest fat oxidation recorded in the study. There was clearly a link between, and it, there was a, an association across all individuals. This seemed to link the, not only a predictive responsiveness to, in these athletes 
to who may have, you know, the most glycemic response to a diet intervention, in this case, carbohydrate restriction, but also that, that change in glucose was associated with the level of fat oxidation. And again, all athletes perform the exact same. But what seemed abundantly clear to me was that it wasn't just about performance. It was also about health and that these individuals seem to show signs that their health may not be optimal depending on their dietary choice. They would have never known that, nor would have we, if we didn't use uh, these continuous glucose monitors to try and capture the resolution of the impact their lifestyle was having on them, irrespective of any of these performance outcomes. Yeah, that's a really nice summary of that paper. Um, one thing I want to say, I guess, if you were to um, I guess speak to the implications of this for athletes along the spectrum, so let's say a very metabolically healthy versus metabolically unhealthy and someone in in between athlete, do you think, you know, what would you suggest are the implications for those three subsets, I guess, uh, of the paper, just to really put a bow on it for, for listeners? Uh, you asked a... You asked a very uh, convoluted question, David. I, so I will try to I will try to uh, uh, shoot an arrow and try try and hit the target. But I can tell you, it's very nuanced. Yep. So once let's say it's again, it's not all about glucose. Yep. Glucose is just incredibly important uh, metric of uh, insight into metabolic health. Like it is, glucose is used as the diagnostic for metabolic diseases such as diabetes. Okay, so it is clearly essential and important in the context of metabolic health. Also, I want to give another caveat before I make this statement that exercise has been shown to improve health independent of weight changes and independent of other factors. So it is an important aspect of someone's life if you want to live a well-lived life, uh, even if you're overweight or not. Okay, uh, Exercise isn't just a tool um, for uh, weight loss, right? Uh, but if you're looking on the spectrum of the athlete uh, and, and where someone may sit and why they may be healthy, here's the, here's the thing. We sit in a very unique time where we're really trying to figure that out. I don't think anyone would have suspected that we would have saw signs of prediabetes in these extremely healthy fit individuals uh, that seemed to be associated with the diet that they were eating because we controlled all other variables. We just shifted the diet and it corrected the problem, right? So that pinned the diet as a potential implicator, if not the implicator of why they were seeing this. But after that paper came out, I actually had a lot of physicians reach out to me and say, hey, yeah, I see some, some athletes, particularly endurance athletes that have like real high HbA1Cs and this and that. I'd never heard this before, by the way. You know, this wasn't like a thing. You know, it was only uh, after this came out and maybe it's my observational bias, like uh, because I, this came out and people were reaching out now uh, that I, I saw this. But it was the first time I was really exposed to the amount of clinicians who reached out to me and said, yeah, a lot of athletes show up like that. And there is variability in these measurements, like a high HbA1c, not everyone with normal glucose uh, has normal HbA1c value. So there's limitations around all these tools. But generally speaking, uh, uh, there is a dose response in glucose values over a prolonged period of time in health. And so dose elevations and uh, glucose control, as you go higher and higher, there's higher and higher risk for all-cause mortality diseases uh, such as cancer. Um, and cardiovascular disease. So this has been uh, pretty uh, well linked uh, to th these factors, especially on public health, big epidemiological studies. But there's plenty of studies in randomized controlled trials linking implications of glycemic control and long-term outcomes. And no better than in my disease, there was a trial called the DCC and EDIC trial 
that studied over a thousand participants with type one diabetes, followed them for 30 years. And the biggest predictor of outcomes, not only uh, acute outcomes, but chronic outcomes and, and ultimately mortality was glycemic control. So it is my belief that if you were to control all other variables, which truly you can't do that in life for the most part, unless you have an experiment like we did where we really uh, controlled as much as we could in, in this environment with these subjects, if you control all their variables and, and one group has normal glycemic control, one group has a rising glucose in the pre-diabetes range and someone over here is let's say type two diabetes, my concern would elevate as each progressive elevation in glucose uh, goes up. And that's because the data says so. Uh, that's because the link between glycemic control and outcomes is there. Uh, I don't know of any data that says someone who is an HbA1c of seven versus an HbA1c of six but that, that seven is better. Uh, you know, there's some controversial trials that have been in the diabetes space um, that have, have said, oh no, you don't wanna over, overdo things or over-medicate participants to get them into certain glycemic control. Yeah, but those are one-offs. Like the over, uh, and when it, when it comes to science, you don't look for the one-off example. You look at the weight of evidence uh, and try to use the weight of evidence as your guiding light to what is most likely the truth what is most likely uh, happening. Uh, and so with that said, uh, I would argue that as glucose levels rise in these athletes, not just per se in response to a, an exercise, I don't mean like, hey, when you exercise at super high intensity, your glucose went high. That actually is a normal response to exercise, particularly high intense exercise. So nothing is per se wrong about that. What we're talking about here is chronically elevated glucose levels that have, that that is what has been associated with diabetes. And that has been what has been associated with long-term health implications as it goes higher and higher. And there's a dose response to that as well. So as you go higher, the worse. Andrew, you've done a bunch of research on ketones. We've talked about ketones a lot on this podcast. Where do you think ketone research is heading in performance and health? Uh, the quick answer, and I can give you more details as it's coming because we are actively doing this. You'll see a lot come out very soon. I believe the power of ketones is most likely when there is a deficit. I think a lot of the performance literature right now is mixed. There's positive effects in certain contexts. There's a lot of neutral effects. In some situations, there might be a slight negative effect. It's really early days for ketone research, to be honest. Um, there's a paper that recently came out that showed improved running economy. Uh, with ketones without carbohydrates. The assumption for so long was that you need to co-administer with carbohydrates because of this hypothesis, by the way, never actually proven that carbohydrates were an important part of co-administration with ketones because it will help provide uh, uh, or protect against using your glycogen and all these other things. Again, that was an assumption that carried on into experiment after experiment. There was almost 30 trials before someone uh, yeah. really tried to, there was one-off examples of not using carbohydrates but not an attempt to truly isolate out whether the carbohydrates co-administered was important. That just yeah, came we out. Had, uh, I mean, ketones have been around. We had Brendan on the podcast and talked to him about it when it just before there it came go. out. There you go. Brendan's yeah. a man. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's exciting stuff. It's actually anecdotally what I'd seen. I'd been speaking to Brendan for a long time and I'd anecdotally seen it in my own running using some ketones is, is feeling that improved economy. Uh, but so continue. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, that's important because I think that that dovetails nicely into a, a point that I think is essential to the user. We, I think there is a place for these, but I think understanding inherent metabolic status of an individual, when you apply it around, uh, let's say it's athletic performance, those are all important contexts that I think we will start to pick apart and elucidate where 
where is best um, or where is worst. I think that's an important uh, also uh, conversation because I know people who take these and they say, oh my gosh, it transformed my life. It was like, it was amazing. I, I, every time I take it, I feel insert the blank. Uh, who knows, maybe that's placebo or maybe they're seeing a real effect. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where I've heard people saying, oh, I took it and you know I bonked that day. You know, like I'm never doing that again. So, you know, there's always these, these aspects to it that I think are worth uncovering. But there is there's a lot of research in which Brennan is, is a part of. So uh, I don't know if you spoke about this on the podcast, but there will be some uh, research that is forthcoming looking at unique environments. Let's say environmental extremes, environments where you change uh, the, the stressor uh, of the environment. It isn't like I'm sitting on a bike in a controlled setting with the same humidity, the, the same temperature, the same amount of oxygen availability. No, you start manipulating those because that's real world, right? Like I live in Santa Barbara. I can go up to the, the top of one of these mountains out the window right here. And that's not going to be, it may not be an over, it won't be like I'm in Boulder, Colorado tip of a mountain. It isn't like I'm at 14,000 feet. Um, but it again, these contexts matter and the context by which you apply them matter. I will, I still stand on this that I think the most powerful component to these molecules are potentially in deficits. And, and what I mean by that is also disease. So implications for when there is something that uh, there's like almost like a, a analogy that someone named Tyler McClure gave me one time. He worked with me at IHMC and now works under Brendan. He's his PhD student. I think he's about to graduate here shortly. One thing he said, and I love this analogy was, you know, if there's a crack in the foundation, ketones seem to be really good at, at, at fixing that crack or, or filling that crack. If there's no crack, maybe there's something to be seen there, but it might be harder to understand or see resolution on. And so I believe that disease circumstances where it could be applied, a lot of neurodegenerative disorders, um, uh, uh, brain energy deficits, that's where I think there's tremendous potential. The, a lot of the more positive, consistent evidence has been on the uh, brain health side of things, whether that be cognition or just overall uh, uh, health and well-being. And a lot of that has started because of the epilepsy world, where people did low-carbohydrate diets. So inevitably, you attach the idea of ketones for, for some type of brain malfunction, i.e. epilepsy. But there's actually evidence now that applying exogenous ketones in a randomized controlled trial over time improves uh, dementia in patients. This was hypothesized for so long, but now there's real evidence. You know, there's there's questions about TBI, there's questions about hypoxia, there's questions about um, a number of domains where there are, are issues or difficulties related to uh, trying to maintain optimal mental brain health that I think there's important uh, applications. And I think that's where it's probably most fruitful. Uh, and that would make some sense, right? Uh, that ketone bodies in the body are really, were really there because when glucose gets low, let's say you go into a famine, evolutionarily speaking, people get all pissed off when you use evolution, but I think it's relevant here. Uh, so let's say evolutionarily speaking, you were not able to get any food for a period of time. Imagine if you had to eat what we do in society nowadays to survive. You had to eat three meals a day, you had to do this, you had to do that. You know, we'd never survive as a species. David, you wouldn't be here. Xylon might be here, okay? But you, David, you're yeah. screwed, okay? No chance you're making it. Um, but it, there, there would be no way we survive that, right? But because our body has adapted mechanisms to where when we have no food consumed, what happens is first glucose lowers in the body. Glucose lowering in the body triggers 
the pancreatic beta cells, the ones that don't work in my body with type one diabetes, but do work in your body, David, and use Xylon, unless you have like secret diabetes you don't want to tell me about. But once that gets low enough, that triggers insulin to get lower because the beta cells respond to glucose levels. Okay. So that, that thermostat again, the, as glucose goes high, they, they pump up more insulin. Well, as glu glucose comes down because you're not eating any food, insulin comes down. That then triggers glycogen to elevate, catecholamines to elevate. That then mobilizes. You also have glucagon, which releases glucose out of the liver, but that's very short-lived. Okay, that only that only works for a short period of time. We're talking hours to a short amount of days, where that would actually help. Once that is deficient, your body's already in the process of realizing oh, I can't rely on glucose as an exclusive fuel. I need to shift my, my use uh, for other substrates to be able to survive. And what does it go to? Well, it goes to the most abundant fuel source we retain on the body that we retain easier than anything else. And why most of America is overweight or fat because the body holds onto fat better than anything for probably biologically, uh, mechanistically in our biology to help us survive because it's ability to help us survive through famine. That's my assumption. Um, and I, I imagine it's probably true. So as fat oxidation goes higher because glucose is unavailable, that's triggered by insulin. Fat that is mobilized from your adipose tissue and a lot of the fat that is consumed on things like a ketogenic diet are long chain fatty acids. Long chain fatty acids do not reliably cross the blood brain barrier. So if you're deficient in the availability of glucose in the body and you also can't reliably transport this abundant fuel source you carry around with you every single day, how is your brain going to maintain the amount of energy it needs, regardless of your fasting or exercise? There is plenty of literature that says that the amount of metabolic demand of the brain stays consistent, regardless of your fasting, exercise it at rest during activity. There may be some marginal changes, like when you do things like exercise, but they're not meaningful. So brain energy is, is static, uh, needs are static. So when you have no glucose, and it was believed for a long period of time that the obligate fuel for the brain is glucose, how is your brain surviving when you're not eating any glucose and there's not enough glucose that the body could even produce to make up the substrate needs of the brain during a fast? Oh, by the way, the amount of the fat you have on your body that's mobilized and used for energy that becomes overwhelming fuel substrate for the body also doesn't reliably cross the blood-brain barrier. So the body developed a mechanism to produce a molecule that reliably provides energetic substrate for the brain, crosses the blood-brain barrier, and can supplement glucose. Those are called ketone bodies. So that's where the context of ketones come up as a brain energy substrate, as, an, uh, as a, quote, alternative brain energy substrate. But this is a very primitive area, and it's, there's a lot of research that's been going on, because even... There's been evidence from a, a gentleman named Stephen Cunane suggesting that when you provide both glucose and the availability of ketones, that the brain will disproportionately use ketones in proportion to the level they're available. Whereas glucose seems to only utilize the amount that is needed. So let's say a cell needs a certain amount of energy. It'll use that amount required from glucose. At least this is the, the layman's way of trying to describe it. And as ketones go higher in the blood, it seems like more and more of it's oxidized. And so that has been used to suggest by some that the preferred fuel substrate for things and tissues like the brain might be ketone bodies. I wouldn't say that that's an ironclad uh, uh, established thing in science, but it's an open-ended question with a lot of uh, 
important implications, particularly on the front of health, especially when there's in, insufficient brain energy uh, available due to, let's say, glucose or in the context of oxygen deprivation. These are all forms of deficits in energy in the brain where something like a ketone body may potentially be able to supplement that. And we know in low carbohydrate diets or in the context of fasting, we know it does that. Uh, that's why it, it was believed to originally be here. That was discovered by George Cahill in the 1960s at Jocelyn Diabetes Center um, uh, and kind of revolutionized our understanding of the context of ketones and their place in the body. But there's been plenty of research in muscle health, in liver health for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Obviously, we already talked about here brain health. Uh, and uh, there's also interest about glycemic health. If you take these molecules, a lot of people have a hypoglycemic effect or a blood glucose lowering effect, and that could have implications for diabetes. In fact, there's multiple clinical trials right now in type two diabetes for chronic administration of ketones um, because of data showing that providing ketone bodies lowers the postprandial glucose rise co-administered with carbs, uh, but just providing glucose alone can lower, or sorry, providing ketones alone can lower glucose. And that has been known for years. Even in type one diabetes, where you isolate out the independent, the effect of insulin, you know, type one diabetes is basically a human insulin knockout model. You know, people in science use these special knockout models to isolate out the effect of a molecule or not. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a walking insulin knockout model. And so is everyone else with type one diabetes who doesn't have their pancreas working anymore. And so uh, in type one diabetic patients, it was shown, I think back in the 19, early 1970s or late 1960s, that IV infusing ketone bodies had a hypoglycemic effect, even in these type one diabetes patients, illustrating that this appears to be independent of insulin. There's something else going on that's driving this that we truly don't completely understand. But there is a lot of research ongoing on this because you can go to the, you can go online right now, or you can go to a sports supplement store and probably find a lot of these molecules. Uh, and there's, uh, and you can take them right now. They're, they're grass approved, meaning generally recognized as safe. Um, and you know, this kind of speaks to this idea of nutrition and exercise has a lot of powerful implications in the context of health. You know, food can be medicine. I'm not saying ketones are medicine per se, but there are certainly implications, i.e. dementia, uh, some studies in, in, in brain energy deficits or neurodegenerative disorders that suggests that that's a potential application. And I think that's powerful. The idea that a molecule your body already produced naturally, it isn't questions around long-term uh, health and implications. Like your body, your body already produces this. There's a lower bar for the expectation on its safety um, that could have implications there. I, I think that that's amazing. I think that any, anywhere where we can find ways to get our body to work for us and, and, and utilize what it was built to do uh, and maintain its health on its own, that's usually a reliable way to maintain health. Yeah, I think it's a really good summary. I'm, uh, I'm pretty bullish on them in the, in the use in uh, disease as well or in, in health uh, realms as well, for sure. I guess one thing I wanted to touch on, we try to keep, uh, or I, I've been trying working hard to keep this podcast pretty balanced in terms of uh, bringing on people with uh, different yeah. viewpoints, uh, you know, lower carbohydrate approaches, for instance. I also want to uh, try and move a little bit away from some of our endurance athlete uh, predominance. Talk to us about your sport. What does it look like? What does sport and exercise look like for you? I, I love lifting weights. And so I, uh, so I have a home gym. And so uh, I'm, I got big into power. I was big into bodybuilding. I got big into powerlifting for a period of time. And so I, I love lifting weights. There's something special about it. 
So I, I do a, a you know, two day on one day off routine. Sometimes I'll, I've started to add some aerobic exercise at the end of that, mostly because of the implications on um, subclinical metrics of, of cardiovascular disease, uh, that adding aerobic exercise more frequently can potentially be beneficial for that. Uh, but then um, uh, every third day, I will do some longer duration. Well, okay, Re long is relative, right? So you probably have a lot yeah. of uh, yeah, super yeah, long yeah. duration athletes. Okay, so let me give some context here. Not that level, okay? But like enough to, because I, a lot of people, you know, uh, volume is super important in sports. It, you know, the more the more miles you rack up, the more contractions you rack up. The the you can't you can't make that up. You can't like take something to fix the amount of miles you need to put in to be able to do a long duration sport. Right. Or in that, in like powerlifting or bodybuilding, you can't replace the volume and total weight lifted uh, to make up for adaptations that that can induce for progression. Right. And, and whatever domain you're looking at, but you no, know, I, I, man, I like lifting weights. Uh, I also love the feeling of cardiovascular um, exercise, not during it. It's like terrible. Right. But afterwards it's glorious. <laughs> Um, it is so wonderful uh, how the, the the mental clarity that comes along with that, um, depending on how long I do it or the duration, you know, there's a lot of these things you kind of really get to see up with type 1 diabetes, like, you know, how long does it take and the intensity do you need to uh, get to to see an insulin sensitizing effect over a prolonged period of time? Like you get to see all this with type 1 diabetes uh, because, you know, you have basically complete control over insulin that's going into the body and you watch it minute by minute, second by second. We're in same thing with glucose. So you get all this resolution. Um, but yeah, I know you didn't ask for all that long winded crap, no, but that's cool. I like resistance exercise and I also love aerobic exercise. Um, because I don't, I'm not trying to be the biggest, the strongest, the fastest anymore. I am truly trying to be healthy and enjoy my life every single day. And what is amazingly ironic is just going in because I, you know, I'm a dad, you know, like, uh, I not saying being a dad means you can't like lift the most amount of weight you've ever done in your life or anything, but my priority was no longer to go like squat, you know, 500 pounds. It wasn't to deadlift, you know, over 500 pounds or bench over, you know, uh, 350 or anything like that. Although that is fun. Don't get me wrong. That's super fun. Uh, I wanted to be able to run around and do those type of fun things. I didn't want to like walk up the stairs and think, oh, that was kind of tough. You know, that's, that sucks. I can tell you that yep. it sucks. That's not yep. fun. And so aerobic exercise and health is, you know, there's a big push for more awareness of resistance exercise. But the reason everyone has studied aerobic exercise for so long is because of the clear cardiovascular benefits. Um, it isn't controversial. Like it clearly helped. It's clearly good for you. Uh, and, uh, I love it. I do love it. And so I try to do a combination of all of it, to be honest with you. And, uh, I can't give you any extreme answer here. Like, oh, I'm, I'm no, no, yeah. I, uh, I, I, much of that resonates heavily with me. I am a reformed meathead in many ways. There is something about lifting weights that you can't replace with, with, uh, endurance exercise. I'll say that as somebody who, who loves both, uh, deeply, uh, I will say though that yeah, not trying to lift your lifetime max is helpful to not feeling terrible every time you move around. Because uh, I was forever sore, yeah. absolutely forever sore. And I, but I think to be honest, if you're trying to push human uh, performance at that level anyway, even if it's running or, or Ironman or cycling, you will be something will be sore. That's just the, the price you pay, I guess. So um, 
it's uh, deeply, deeply interesting to me. But it probably brings us to a, a, a cool point, and we've teased on the podcast um, an announcement previously, and uh, we t- teased about talking about it, and we are bringing out uh, Super Sapiens Diabetes uh, to the U.S., um, something that we mentioned to you briefly just before recording this and got you very excited, Andrew. So you will be guinea pigging for us a little bit. So we appreciate that. But I guess why I wanted to bring this up um, is one of the big things that um, I think is really important is that uh, context is really key in diabetes management and in, I mean, in glucose understanding in general, whether you've got diabetes or not. Um, and, you know, I've seen you post on Instagram. Uh, I think part of the reason you started doing your cardiovascular activity post heavy lifting uh, was to control glucose uh, a little bit because of some of the higher intensity yeah. effects. So, and I think that speaks volumes to it, which is if I was to just show you a glucose trace without context, it would be very difficult to interpret, right? So, uh, and that's what we're trying to bring with uh, Super Sapiens Diabetes is is some context around glucose data. So uh, I, I use the analogy of heart rate. And I say, if I showed you a, a daily heart rate trace and asked you to what happened, how, how easy would that be to interpret? And everyone says, oh, you, you sort of need context. And it's the same with glucose, I think. So, um, yeah, we're David, bringing it out. You can't, just, you can't just throw out this whole uh, diabetes arm of Super Sapien. Obviously, you guys have been involved in sport and people are very aware of that. Uh, can yep. you give me a little more context? Because you almost said it as if I knew about this. I didn't know about this. So can you educate me on what that looks like? What What is Super Sapien trying to accomplish Obviously, you know my bias and, and diabetes. Uh, you know, I study it every single day, and I live with it every single day. So, I would love to know more. What does this mean for Super Sapien? What does yeah. this mean for the diabetes community? So, some of the feedback we've had from people um, who, like Phil, our, our CEO, who's used yeah. uh, Super Sapiens in in combination with his diabetes management, because he's obviously the Super Sapiens sports sensors to this point, or the super sapiens sports sensors have measured between 55 and 200 um, as a, a range limit. So for people like Phil who have type one diabetes, it's not really that helpful if he goes above 200. Now you can argue that, you know, maybe that's an incentive to try and stay below 200, but you know, we're not going to go there. So he's been using that alongside, alongside a different, you know, another sensor he uses. Um, and what he found was that the context that the super sapien system provided him because it pulled in data from sporting activities because it, you know, he could create more events that are a bit more nuanced. It allowed him to learn a lot quicker and learn a lot more. And we've had similar feedback from people uh, who've used sensors who, who have diabetes as well. And, and of course that's not, um, it's not made for that. It's not made for people with diabetes, the super sapien sports sensors, but that feedback has helped inform us to come to diabetes and, and bring the same insights to people with diabetes so they can start to understand you know, what exercise does, I was exercising here, that event has been created automatically. So I know that I did an hour of exercise there, be it gym or whether it's running or swimming. So now you have that as something in your day, similar to a diary that you would have filled out, you know, probably as a 17, 18, 19 year old, when you had your diary and you kept notes of everything. So trying to bring in more context for people and reduce friction, right? That's, that's the tech company. um, It's always the tech company statement is reducing friction. So if I automatically track a run on my Garmin because that's what I do because I'm a runner and it doesn't count unless you tracked it on your Garmin. Then if that can automatically bring that data into my super sapiens app, now all of a sudden I understand, Hey, when my glucose was high there, that wasn't the po- you know, that was towards the end of my run. Okay. That, that makes sense in context of this. It wasn't meal or something else related. Right. So, or you can yeah. start to see at what point through your run, uh, things started to de- deteriorate. So was it the 90 minute mark or was it the two hour mark? And what does that mean for implications of management, right? What does that mean? Yep. 
And then that's the sort of initial offering. And then, of course, going forward, we want to bring more very specific diabetes insights to people. So things around, um, you know, I guess a broader time frame because I think you see this definitely with our sport users, but I'm sure this is the same with diabetes and your understanding as well as somebody who's, who's lived with the disease for a long time and probably talks to a lot of people who are newly diagnosed is that often there's a focus of what's happening right now and perhaps what happened an hour ago. And then as you learn more and more about glucose, that expands out and that window expands out and it becomes a window of that day, the previous day, the previous week. And you start to understand that sort of stuff in that context. And I think we'd love to bring those insights to people and try and help them learn faster because I think learning faster is the superpower in the world these days. And we'd love to see people learning faster and being able to learn to, to thrive with uh, diabetes as you have, to be honest. And it's something that I have written down here to reflect on with Zylan afterwards is the way that you frame diabetes in your life as a learning opportunity and as a, a superpower to some degree like that, that really is powerful for people to hear, not just with diabetes, but with anything you're dealing with is like, how could this be helpful to me? How could I learn from this? So yeah. Every major struggle I've ever experienced in life has actually, I, I reflect upon my life on your last point, David, about every major pivotal moment in my life where something truly transformative and positive came out of it. And without a doubt, what happened before that was a major life low a major pit in my life, a major uh, 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 valley in my life, sometimes the worst, um, produce the best afterwards. And you know, I'm a big believer, just like an exercise, uh, it, you either adapt or you break. And I think when it comes to life, it's the same way. And uh, first of all, I'm pumped about, so to flip back to the diabetes stuff, I'm, I'm obviously pumped about this. This is great, obviously. I can tell you that there's the applications for diabetes are very obvious, right? Um, and, uh, what's exciting about that in many ways is that without data, you're making assumptions. And so, you know, we can make all these assumptions in the world, like why, you know, I feel better when I do insert the blank. Okay. Well, you know, that's good that, you know, what makes you feel better, but without any context whatsoever, um, you're really going blind and you're really making assumptions. So if you say, oh, I feel terrible every single day, uh, and I don't know why. Well, you throw on a CGM one day and all of a sudden you're going up to 160 every time you feel terrible and you feel like you're going to take a nap as you start diving down. All of a sudden, you now have an explanation. You have data that gives you resolution on why something's happening. And what can you do with that? Now you can change it. But without any understanding of what's going on, you can't do any of those things. Okay. And I think that it's, that's why I love research. That's why I love the exploration of the why behind an outcome. Uh, and, but obviously living with a disease uh, and being so passionate about my own journey with health, disease and performance, uh, the, the outcome is also the most, uh, if not the most, it is one of the most important things. Uh, but this gives resolution along the way and gives context along the way. I certainly know with exercise, the most difficult part. So I do, uh, you know, it's no secret I've, I've done uh, and, and still do a very low carbohydrate diet for glycemic control and type 1 diabetes as a personal choice to each their own. Uh, but one of the most difficult parts, once I have gotten this very neutral uh, impact on glycemia, exercise is without a doubt the most difficult management component. It is so important to health. It is so critical to how you feel. But it is, without a doubt, one of the most difficult things to manage, specifically in my disease, because as you exercise, 
you're changing insulin absorption, you're changing insulin uptake, the sensitivity, all these other variables. And it's all dependent on various things like duration of exercise, how intense was the exercise, what type of exercise, what time of day did you do the exercise? All these different components make it almost impossible for someone to pin it without one data and ability to synthesize that data in a meaningful format to be actionable on. And so uh, that's why, you know, I've em embraced the disease the way I have, because at the end of the day, if I'm going to spend, if I'm going to make an, an extra 180 decisions every single day with the disease, I might as well be able to translate that to, to other people and to what I do for a job. So it, it all comes together. But uh, uh, I'm happy for the diabetes community that um, Super Sapiens is getting involved. Um, and you know that there's a, a cool link, obviously, between where I'm standing here today and Super Sapiens, one of your, your key team members. Uh, was here and was a pioneer at this institute, this diabetes institute, um, before then translating a lot of what was learned from that experience into the world that Super Sapiens has, has created. So um, cool link there. Yeah. And for those interested, that was Dr. Howard Zisser. We have an episode on the history of CGM with him. So go back and check that one out to talk a lot about exactly what you just mentioned there. But Andrew, this has been really, this has been a real treat, a real privilege. Um, really appreciate you, you joining us and, uh, conversation's been great. We've learned a ton. Um, I'm hoping that uh, we can get you back on at some point. Hopefully you'll, uh, you'll grace with your presence again. And uh, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, so David, I, I, it was an honor. Zylon, I'm not forgetting about you, man. Uh, it was also an honor. I appreciate the questions you guys had the time with, with you as well. Uh, we do have some, some very, very important things coming. And, and I think a lot of that's going to come out all this year. So that, that spans not only health and performance, there's a project um, that, uh, you know, Super Sapiens has been involved in. And so that will kind of, that is actually coming next from the prior study we talked about here today. So this is a, this is a follow-up to that prior work that extends on that topic um, and uh, is actually using the Super Sapiens uh, CGM to provide some resolution on that. I think the results of that are going to be... Uh, <laughs> absolutely worthy of similar interest. So, uh, well, so there, there's that. I'm going to book you in ahead of time for this. So when that <laughs> is going to be released, you reach back out, we're getting you back on. We want to hear about it. Good deal. We'll do that. And there's also some major things in type one diabetes this year that are coming. So I'm, I'm excited about all of it. I, I feel lucky. I'm living a dream. Uh, I got a disease that allows me to do some really cool things and learn a lot from it and appreciate what you guys do. Uh, the mission that you guys have as a company as well and an opportunity to speak with you guys uh, about that. So uh, thank you. From my perspective, you're welcome back anytime because my favorite time of recording this podcast of all time happened today when you said I would outlast David in, in, in a famine, which is, I mean, true. So you're welcome back anytime, Andrew. Oh, I didn't call you fat. Is that what you're saying? You, th you thought I called you fat or something? <laughs> no, I was gonna, I was gonna let him know that's what you were saying. No, I that's, was, uh, no. I did. Uh, so, uh, for the for the for the audience, I definitely did not call Zylon fat at all. Um, but no, I uh, no, you guys are great. I appreciate it. Uh, you guys are wonderful. Um, although I, you know, maybe there's a competition to be had. Maybe we'll, if there's an opportunity, we all meet up one day. Uh, you guys come to Santa Barbara, uh, and uh, uh, we can see find some way to uh, have some fun competition. I'm, I'm keen. I. I don't need any excuse to go to Santa Barbara. I love it there. I love the coffee. I love the weather. I've had some great times there. So um, 
yeah, let's do yeah. it. We'll make it happen. Good deal. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been awesome. Thank you. Likewise, guys. Dr. Andrew Kutnick, what a delightful human being. Oh, he's just the all-around good guy, David. That was a fantastic chat. Yeah, infectious personality, super positive. Um, yeah, lovely dude. Lovely, lovely guy. Really appreciate having him on and looking forward to having him back. Early on in the conversation, he talked about his personal interest in losing weight. And it's interesting how that pretty much was almost the beginning stages of what has become his life today. Yeah, and I think that happens for a lot of people. Um, you can look at origin stories of many people, and it's it's something that they pursue. You know, many athletes go into say physiotherapy because they had problems with injuries or something like that. I think there's there's a lot of this sort of stuff that you see happen. So it's cool to see that link for him and and how he's been able to to leverage that into a career. He was talking about people living with diabetes having to do like make like 180 more decisions a day just based on their diabetes management. Yeah, and that's very fatiguing, right? Decision fatigue is a real thing. Uh, making decisions, you hear these stories of President Obama, you know, wearing the same thing so that he didn't have to think about it. Same with Steve Jobs. Uh, and a, a doctor I worked with for a while had us carrying around clickers, and we were to click every time we had to make a decision during the day in medicine, like medical decisions around patient health. And those numbers were very high as well, and it really does impact you on the days where you do more. There's no question. You don't realize it until you actually deliver it with regards to counting it and then yeah it surprises you um I, I loved i mean i say he's a good guy and you say he's infectious and it's true and you can see it around his diabetes diagnosis and how he chose to positively frame it yeah i mean that's a superpower that like level of positivity in that i mean phil has this as well for sutherland our ceo and we've got a previous episode with him that listeners can go listen to but they both see diabetes as a superpower for them that's given them insight and, and given them a I guess, meaning in their life in many respects uh, without wanting to sort of uh, put words in their mouths. And and I think both of them have said they'd very heavily not want a cure if there was one or, or would very heavily consider it. And I think that speaks volumes to it as well. So, um, yeah, super cool. He's lifting weights as a sport. You've lifted weights as a sport. Before, I want to ask you about this insulin use in bodybuilding. Yeah, this is a thing. That's one of the you know, bodybuilders are known for many, many, um, much abusing of drugs for aesthetic gains. And one of the drugs they actually abuse or one of the things they abuse is insulin. So they'll often inject insulin post, uh, workout post meal because it's a, it's a storage anabolic hormone. It's a, it's something that helps you grow. So it's very common. Uh, and interestingly, uh, Andrew talked on the podcast about the risks of insulin overdose or it, too much insulin and can, you know, can actually kill you. And, Insulin used to be what was used for ECT, so electric corporal therapy, which is, um, you know, the shock therapy that they use for mental health disorders um, a lot of the time. And insulin was what used to be used to induce these seizures. Now it's um, electricity, obviously, but, it, you know, so insulin is an interesting, interesting hormone that um, can be abused and misused, but it's, yeah, it's fascinating to me. Wow. I remember hearing that. Did Howard mention that on his podcast? Uh, I think I mentioned it to you before, mate. Okay, you take the credit. My bad memory giving you giving you a win. Well, classic you not listening to me, mate. Classic, <laughs> classic you not listening to me. The last point I wanted to touch on was performance and health not necessarily being in alignment, like a fit athlete not necessarily being a healthy athlete. Yeah, well, I think his uh, or the study population they used for their study that we talked about um, 
quite at length on the podcast is is the most informative. It's pretty much all of our listeners, uh, or what we assume they are, as people who are you know middle aged, uh, without offending anybody, and and you know performing at a high level, take, undertaking high level endurance sports, and and this not necessarily protecting them metabolically from a metabolic health standpoint. So, um, I was trying to probably get a little bit more out of Andrew in this respect in terms of what it meant for them. But uh, regardless, I think we all need to think about where we sit on the performance versus health spectrum and what we are prioritizing and then make decisions in that way because sometimes the decisions are aligned so to exercise or not to exercise that decision is both healthy and will help performance for the most part but perhaps the extra gels perhaps some of these other things may not be as healthy and they may help performance right so they may be bad for dental health or something like that excessive amounts of exercise may be um, detrimental at some point there's probably a level at which it becomes a little bit detrimental uh, so we really need to examine this to understand where we sit on that spectrum so we can make appropriate decisions and i think a lot of athletes and uh and when i say athletes i'm talking about a broad spectrum i'm not talking elite athletes i'm talking about anybody who is doing athletic endeavors i think a lot of people are very performance focused um without really considering if that's really where their values align. I actually thought about you during my last marathon. I had a, a handful of gummy sweets that I was fueling with on the last uh, like half an hour or so and shoved it all in my mouth. A lot of it got stuck in my teeth and I was thinking about you and talking about dental health and you reminded me and I was like, when I get to the next water station, I need to just grab some pure water and rinse out my teeth. At least I'm, I'm suffering in the marathon and I'm thinking about my dental health. So you were stuck in my head, man. You're welcome. I live, I live rent-free there, mate, so you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Super Sapiens Podcast. We appreciate you downloading this episode. If you liked it and enjoyed it, please rate and subscribe it and share it with a friend. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email david at supersapiens.com because I'm a VIP and I don't share my email address publicly, but he's a nicer guy than me. Also, join the Super Sapiens Discord channel and join in on the conversation over there. David, thank you so much. Thank you, mate. You have a good one.